Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. This morning reading will be in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 18. If we would stand for the reading of the word, please. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and it have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, and in in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen When it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And when he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and all that region who were two years older, old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in in Rome, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to to be comforted because they are are no more. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. At this time, Ms. Sharon is going to take all our kids out to Children's Church. Everybody else, y'all pray with me here. Dear Lord, 
God, I ask that you would be with me this morning as I bring your word to your people. God, that the words that I would speak here would have effect on the hearts and the minds of those who hear it. God, that you would guard my tongue, lest I say anything that is not from you. And that you would be glorified in all that is spoken here. Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I'm, I'm coming into now my fifth year here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Amen. Right. One of the, uh, the average tenure of a pastor is, is now like 18 months, so I'm, I'm doing good. I'm beating the curve, okay? Um, one of the benefits of having a pastor stay, and there's lots of benefits to having a pastor stay for an extended period of time, is you, is you get to grow old together. <laughs> oh, come on. Older. You get to grow older together. And so you guys have watched me, right, as I've, as I've gotten older, right, as I've, I've worked through my 40s here. I'm, I'm working through them. My hair's all gone, and my beard is turning gray. I'm maturing. Yes, ma'am, I'm maturing. And, and so we, you've gotten to, we've gotten to be together as I've gone through milestones in my life, and I had a milestone this Christmas. See, I, I'm used to being the person that always understands or understood technology, Right? I had a close relationship with my grandmother. I was the one that would go to her house to set the clock on her VCR. Okay? Funny thing, exactly, right? That's right. Oh, God bless you, Chris. Your day's coming. Believe me, your day's coming. But as I have grown older and my children have grown older, I've begun to see things happen. And one of them is I don't operate the technology the same way I used to. And the frustration that used to be in my mind, in my heart, when I watched my parents or grandparents operate the technology in our house, I can now see in the eyes of my son, <laughs> who finds that it's easier just to take the remote control out of my hand than watch as I try to flip through the stupid menus to get to the movie that we're watching. I, more than that, I find myself no longer being an early and avid adopter of new technology. I used to love all new things. If it was new, I loved it. But now I have begun to fear new technology as it comes out. I know nobody here understands what that's like. Everybody here accepts new things as they come in. I have begun to see within myself a fear of that which is new and a nostalgia for that which is old or established or familiar. See, fear of the new can become an incredibly powerful element in people's lives, and it has been for a long time. What we see this morning is at its base a tragedy that is born out from the fear 
that one man has towards something new. Now, we've spent the last few weeks preparing to celebrate Christmas, and we've been looking at the different ways that people respond to the coming of Christ. Last week, we looked at the responses of Zachariah and Mary, and we kind of compared them. On Christmas Eve, we, respond, we looked at the response of, of two prophets, Anna and Simeon. This morning, we're going to look at the responses of three additional groups of people. And what we're going to see is that the responses in these people are indicative of the overall response that people have to Christ. That's intentional, by the way. Matthew meant to do that. He was trying to encapsulate in the birth of Christ all of the responses that would then plague or bless Jesus' life throughout his ministry. We begin with Herod, king of the Jews. We read in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worshiping. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Now, to understand what's going on here, we need to understand some things about Herod. Herod, we're told, was the king of the Jews, but in reality, he was not really a king, and he was also not really a Jew. Herod was an Idumean, which means that he was from the Arabian Peninsula. He was a part of a group of tribes that had been conquered by the Jews during the preceding century. And through court intrigue and, and palace pressure, his family had actually come to power over this semi-autonomous region that the Romans really couldn't be troubled to govern. Israel was a very dangerous place. In many ways, it was a graveyard of empires. And Rome didn't really want to spend the time fighting with these people all the time. And so they established Herod's father on the throne. And in his time, Herod became king. And Herod, well, Herod was an interesting guy. He was not ethnically Jewish, but he built or at least beautified the temple. Now, he did this in an effort to make the Jewish subjects that he relied on amenable to him. Religiously, he was kind of a Roman, kind of a Greek. He probably worshipped Greek gods, kept Greek customs. Politically, he was Roman. Morally, he was disgusting. I mean, there's no real way other than that to put it. He was cruel. He was calculating. He'd have you killed at the drop of a hat. 
We're, we're told at the end of his life, as his death neared, he took all of the notables of the Jewish people and gathered them together in the local sports arena so that when he died and they were all killed, there would be some kind of mourning in the kingdom. That was his reasoning. Herod was not a great guy. But he did understand power. And so he responds to the news of the birth of the Messiah the way you would expect a cold, calculating dictator to respond to the birth of his successor. Think Kim Jong-un. You know, that kind of, that, you know, that funny little guy that runs North Korea. Think about how he would respond to the birth of the Messiah in North Korea. It could be good, but it probably wouldn't be. That's how Herod responded. It's pretty straightforward. We understand it. He responds out of fear. And fear can be a strong motivator. And I want us to understand this. Fear is not necessarily a bad thing. In many ways, God has hardwired us to respond to certain things, right? Caution isn't a bad thing. When we're young and stupid, we're not as cautious, right? That's because the part of our brain that's supposed to feel fear hasn't developed yet. It's why I can look down a mountain at 18, and think, wow, this is going to be fun. And at 42, I think, man, that's a long drop. Maybe I'm going to get back on the ski lift. Oh, you can't get back on the ski lift? Oh, man. If you were to take a functional MRI of my brain when I was 18, parts of it would light up that didn't light up when I was 42. Fear isn't bad. Fear helps us to not make bad choices. There's a reason why you can't rent a car until you're 25. Because car rental companies know that it's a bad bet to let an 18-year-old rent a sports car. And so Herod responds to the birth of his successor in fear because he knows that the people don't love him. And he knows that his entire edifice of power is resting on a thread. That the only thing that keeps him in power is the acquiescence of the people he rules. See, for Herod, Jesus means the loss of everything he loves and desires. And even though Jesus is just a baby... That fear overwhelms him. And when fear overwhelms us, guys, we do terrible things. When fear overwhelms us, things get dangerous. Brothers and sisters, there's some of you in this room, maybe some of you online today, that are desperately, desperately afraid. 
You're afraid of losing your job. You're afraid of losing your family. You're afraid that the government is going to come and take whatever it is you like. Your guns, your Bible, not your VCR because we don't have those anymore. But you're afraid. For many of us, most of us, we live in fear. That's why we buy insurance. That's why we buy survival radios and survival rations, bug out bags. That's why we spend time tooling up our AR 15s. Yeah, you know who you are. Guys, I need you to understand this. There are all kinds of things that we are afraid of, but for many of us, this fear, par- this fear paralyzes us. Because Jesus has come to call us into a new and a better life to redeem and to recreate us in his image. And some of us, many of us, are not accepting this new life and this new creation because we are afraid of what it's going to cost us. We're afraid of inviting someone in our life who might tell us to give up something that we cherish, something that we hold on to, something that we love. There's all kinds of things that we cling to that prevent us from fully enjoying our relationship with Christ. It could be a relationship that we're not supposed to be in. It could be a job that defines us. It could be an unhealthy attachment to our health insurance or our retirement plan. I I know because I have clung to all of these things at different points in my life. All of these things were instrumental in preventing me from doing something that God wanted me to do. It's critically important, guys, that we understand that often fear is an amazing indicator of what we idolize. We worship what we fear to lose. You want to see what's central in your life? Start taking things away. You will learn very quickly what it is you worship. And often, what we worship isn't Jesus. And so Herod was... Motivated by fear, fear of losing the things that he cherished, and that fear drove him to genocide, as fear often will. Now, very few of us in here are in the position of being able to commit or orchestrate genocide. But that doesn't mean that fear in our lives can't make us do terrible things. In fear, we can destroy relationships. In fear, We can hurt people. In fear, worst of all, we can reject our Savior. But see, there's another way that people responded to Christ. Herod responded at least in a healthy way, or at least something that we can understand. He responded in fear. And there's an element of nobility in fear. The religious leaders, they responded in ambivalence. The religious leaders didn't fear Jesus' birth. They didn't really care about it. 
We read that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And he, was, and he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Okay, now understand this. These are the people that have been waiting for Jesus for 400 years. These are the people that are supposed to know what's going on. They make their money knowing what's going on. If you were to say, hey man, how do you make a living? Well, I make a living understanding what the scriptures say. That's why I wear this cool hat and get the choicest cuts of meat at the party. My profession is knowing scripture. Except when it actually came time to understand what the scripture said, they missed it. And, and worse than that, right? It wasn't even that they missed it because they called it correctly. Where is the Savior supposed to be born? Where's the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea. That's so weird. He was just born in Bethlehem of Judea. You guys got it right. Good job. You do deserve the good cut of meat. The big piece of chicken. The good pork chop. How do they know that? Well, because the prophets wrote it. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd his, my people Israel. So they even correctly applied the prophecies to what was going to happen. So far, so good. See, they knew about the Messiah. They knew that someone would be born that would lead Israel. They knew that this guy was going to come and usher in a new covenant, right? They had Jeremiah 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people Israel and with the people of Judah. They even knew that the covenant would be different, right? It won't be like the covenant made with your ancestors when I took them by hand to lead them out of Israel. I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is amazing and the people are waiting for this and they expect it to happen. See, the difference though was they expected the Messiah to come in a different way. They didn't like Herod. They hated Herod. They knew he was a fake. They knew he was an immoral, evil man who did horrible, evil, immoral things. And so every day they would pray that God would send the Messiah to them. Oh, Lord, that you would raise up Messiah and that this Messiah would crush the Romans and that the Messiah would crush Herod. But see, they thought he was going to be a messianic king who would come riding in in power. They knew he would come from the line of David, but they expected him to come like David, riding down out of the hills with warriors so that they could welcome him with open arms. And so when the Messiah came in the place that he had been predicted to come, but he was born in a way that they didn't expect him to be born, their response was a resounding, meh, okay. The Messiah that they had been waiting for for 400 years 
was five miles away from Jerusalem, and none of them could be bothered to go and see if maybe, just maybe, he was who everybody had been expecting. See, the religious elites of Jerusalem spent their days talking about the Messiah, but they had no real intention of ever meeting the Messiah. As my grandfather would say, because talk is cheap. It's easy to get the big piece of chicken or the big pork chop by sitting around a table and having deep thoughts about things that you don't actually do expect to happen. I am astounded how often people tell me that they want the rapture to come. Oh, pastor, is the rapture about to happen? Oh, I hope the rapture is about to happen. Do you have any idea how bad that's going to be for how many people? We talk flippantly about things like apocalypse. Go up to Kentucky and walk through a destroyed town. That is a pale shadow of the destruction that will come when Christ finally returns. Now hear me, I'm not saying I don't want Christ to return. I'm saying we need to understand that there will be consequences. See, religion is easy when it means nothing and costs nothing. When all it is is talk. But the reality of our devotion to Christ is tested when we have to take a stand, when we have to risk offending people, when our belief in Christ separates us or makes us different. That's when religion actually means something, when it calls us to do something. See, for many of us today, we're content to talk about Jesus, but we're not willing to do anything else about it. It's not that we're afraid of Jesus or that we hate Jesus, it's that we nothing Jesus. He doesn't really impinge on our life. We're going through the motions, but when things require extra effort, or any effort, we shrug our hands, and we respond with a resounding cosmic meh. Maybe tomorrow. I want to read my Bible, but the Bible's hard to understand. I want to pray, but my mind wanders. I want to love my neighbor, but my neighbor's a jerk. And it's so much more fun to talk about him behind his back. Maybe accidentally flooding his flower beds. Putting rock salt in the fertilizer sprayer. I mean, not saying that I've ever done that, but you know. We're going through the motions. But I warn you this morning, the Bible is very clear. Our faith, we are saved by faith, but our faith is proved by our works. And devotion is tested by opposition. You know that every one of Jesus' disciples told him at some point, oh, Lord, I'm going to be with you. When things get bad, I'm going to be right there with you, Jesus. What did Peter say? Oh, Jesus, I'll die for you. And yet, when the rubber meets the road, everybody runs away. 
We had an expression back when I used to grow up said, everybody wants to be a thug till it's time to do thug stuff. It's easy to wear a hat backwards and spray paint something on a wall. I want to warn you this morning, God has a way of using life to sort out the wheat from the chaff. And the religious leaders who did not respond to the birth of Jesus, who sat on the fence while Herod killed all of the children, they're not going to be allowed to stand on the fence forever. There will come a point where they will have to either accept Christ or crucify Christ. They don't get to stand on the fence. And guys, I need you to understand this. You're not going to be able to stand on the fence. God won't allow you to do it. At some point in your life, you're going to have to take a stand. At some point in your life, you're going to have to fish or cut bait. You're going to have to make a choice to follow Jesus or to admit that you don't actually know him. And that's scary. I don't know what it could be. It could be many different things. It might be a child or a parent that forces you to make a hard choice between their feelings and what the Bible teaches. I see that a lot. I see that a lot. When we choose a family member over Christ. It might be an illness or a family tragedy that forces you to confront your attitude towards a sovereign God whose will does not conform to your plans or your priorities. Oh, brother, God's good all the time. Until you get sick. Until that diagnosis comes back. Are you sitting in the doctor's office waiting to see what the test says? Is he good then? Is he good when you get called at 2 o'clock in the morning because there's been a car accident? Is he good then? Is he good when somebody comes up missing? When good doesn't look like what you think good should look like? But it may not even be that. It may not be something drastic. They may not have you in the town square with the guillotine like they had in those cheesy old movies, right, where they'd ask you if you're a Christian, and if you said yes, then they'd put you up and they cut your head off. Some of you guys know those movies. You saw those on TBN. Come on. It may not be that. It may just be a moment of clarity when you, honest, you honestly consider that speaking about the infinite God of the universe should not Result in apathy or benign neglect. When you ask yourself, do I really believe what I always thought that I believed? When you understand that maybe you don't feel any passion about God because you never really met him. And you don't know him. See, God will not allow you to stand on the fence forever. But then we turn and we see a group of men who responded the right way. See, the king responded in fear and the religious leaders responded in ambivalence, but there was another group who responded with nobility and with faith and whose faith moved to action. 
the heroes of this story, the people that should not have been the heroes. Right? The guys that for centuries had been the villain in every story that the Jews ever told. The only group that responds to the birth of the Messiah in faith were pagan astrologers from Persia. I mean, think about that. Think about it if Jesus came today and the only ones who responded was the Jamaican tarot card reader down the street. Or the, or the Muslim member of ISIS. Maybe that's a little closer to home. We read that the wise men, Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. The liar and the snake. But again, at least he's looking for Jesus. The religious leaders don't care. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So who are these guys? See, many people had been expecting a Messiah. There is prophecies throughout the Middle East at this time about a, about a, a Messiah who's going to come. Ancient Roman authors report that the East was blaming, was blazing with rumors of a Messiah. The Old Testament scriptures had been translated into Greek and had gone all throughout the, the Old Testament world even as far away as Persia, where there were remnants of the Jewish people that were still living in exile there. Many people were waiting for the hope of Abraham. God was preparing the hearts of the Gentiles to receive him. And so it seems that there's this group of magi living in what we think is probably Persia. Now the magi are astrologers. These are guys that work for the king. They're probably eunuchs. Their job is to read the stars and tell the future, maybe cut open animals and, and read the entrails, kind of see whether things were auspicious or not by what the liver looks like. That's a real thing. They really did that. Battles were fought or not fought based on the shape of a duck's intestines. These guys knew magic spells and understood the occult. They sold essential oils to people. That's, that's not true. They didn't sell essential oils. Maybe they did. I don't know. It's where we get essential oils from. They all drank dandelion tea. All of them. <laughs> I'm kidding. About the dandelion tea. They did sell essential oils. And so these guys, as they're staring at the stars, waiting to discern the will of the gods, they begin to see a sign, and we don't know what it was. We don't really understand what the star was. It could have been a supernova. It could have been an alignment of the planets. We're not sure. Whatever it was, it was very clear to them. So clear to them that they left what they had, packed all their stuff, took money, bought gifts, hazarded a journey across the Syrian desert, 
across a border into a country that was their enemy. The Persians and the Romans, by the way, didn't get along at all. It's like Russia and Ukraine. They crossed this border looking for something that they didn't understand. See, whatever God's message was, it drastically affected them. So much so that when they finally found the one who they were looking for, they responded with worship. They fell on their knees and they worshiped Christ. They didn't turn their noses up at the small child living in a peasant village. They bowed down to him and gave him gifts of great value. See, their hearts had been prepared, and when they saw him, their hearts were broken, and they were never the same again. See, the wise men responded to the coming of Jesus with faith, and their faith transformed them. So we got three people. We got a man who responds in fear and does something horrible. We have a group of men who respond in ambivalence. And miss the one that they've been looking for for all the centuries. And then you have a group of unlikely outsiders who respond in faith and become the heroes. Matthew wants his readers to see the birth of Jesus as marked by these same patterns of rejection and acceptance that will play out throughout Christ's life and his ministry. This is going to play out over and over and over again. The Romans will finally crucify Jesus. The religious leaders are going to reject Jesus, and Jesus is going to be accepted by every outcast, every sinner, every Gentile that he comes across, women, Slaves, lepers, the sick, the lost, the needy, all of these people are going to come into relationship with Christ while all the people that should have followed him are going to turn their backs on him. And this is where the hope is for us today because every single person in this room today is broken. No, nobody here is clean and spotless. We, we all have deep abiding scars on our souls, things that we think make us too dirty or too broken to be able to embrace Christ, too broken to be able to be used in his kingdom, too broken to be able to be successful at life. And yet God shows us in this story and in all the stories of the gospel that those are the tools that he uses to do amazing things. And so I want you to know, guys, as we prepare to leave this place, that there is a place for you in the kingdom of God, that there is a mission for you in the mission of Christ. That what separates you from Herod or the people that were ambivalent towards Christ is your response to Jesus. See, you get to choose today how you're going to respond. You get to choose today what this is going to look like. Are you going to respond in fear to Christ and his message? Because it may cost you everything. Because it may mean you're no longer in charge of your life. Because it may mean that you have to accept things that sound crazy. 
may affect the way that you have your relationships with the people around you. You're afraid. Are you going to respond with ambivalence and put off a decision till another day? Are you going to be like those wise men and respond in fear and faith on your knees? Are you going to offer up the gift of your life to the one who'd come to save you? I, I can't make that decision for you guys this morning, but I can declare it to you. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And as we sing one of these old hymns of the faith, as we pray, I, I want you to take a moment. In fact, I want you to take a moment right now as I pray. I want us to hold off on the music for just a second. I want you to take a moment. And I want to ask yourself, do I really know Christ? Not did I walk an aisle when I was 20 or 10 or 5. Not, not was I baptized not, not even did have I gone to church. But do I have a relationship with Christ? Is he real to me? Do I speak to him? Do I give him the right to tell me what to do? I want you to really ask yourself that. And if you don't know the answer, when we have our song of invitation, I want you to come forward so we can pray for you. We have deacons that are going to be here that can talk with you. We can help you figure out what your relationship with him looks like. I don't know where you are this morning, guys, but I do know that Jesus comes to you this morning inviting you to a relationship with him. And it's up to you whether or not you're going to respond to it. Y'all pray with me now. Dear Lord, God, in this moment, as we prepare to leave this place, God, I ask you right now that you would descend on this place in fire. You have told us, Lord, that your word is sharp as a two-edged sword, that it cleaves bone from marrow. And so, Lord, I ask that the word that you have written, that you have brought to us today, Lord, that it would pierce the hearts of the people here that it would unequivocally divide those who are in you and those who are not. God, that your word would be a hammer breaking down every pretense and every illusion and every lie that we have told ourselves. And that just for a moment, just for an instant, we would be honest. God, that we would be honest about what we believe who we love and what we fear. Oh Lord, I ask that you would move in this place right now. That you would begin to repair that which is broken. And you would move in the hearts of the people that need to respond to you. God, I ask these things in the strong name of your son Jesus. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.